All right. Questions from Psalm 23. Then we'll broaden it to the Psalms in general. Then we'll go to issues dealing with the Holy Spirit. That's the order. So Psalm 23. Or some people say Sam. You didn't hear call it a Sam? It's a Psalm. Anyway, sorry. Psalm, Sam. But whatever it is, it's not Psalms 23. Okay, it's the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 23. Okay, that, that is the one that does drive me crazy. Um, you, you got a question? Oh, okay. You're looking questioningly. Sorry. Anything? Anybody? Anybody? Somebody? We're good? On Psalm 23. Going once. Oh, Zach. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, that's, that's an excellent point. The, the fact that in this situation, this is kind of what I was getting at. Well, Zach's question for the tape is, is it only through the Lord's guidance that we can end up in this dark, scary valley, or are there other ways to get there? Yes, there are other ways. Um, there's only one way to God. There's many ways to the dark valley. Um, Certainly our own sin, right? Um, so, in fact, in one of the examples where the, where the Israelites are crying out to God according to their name, remember not our sins against us. Let your compassion come speedily to us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Well, it sounds like they're in some nasty, dark valley. Deliver us. Help us. <laughs> Precisely because they left him. So yeah, if the shepherd's leading you, and you go off the path, you can end up in a, in a pit. You can end up falling off a cliff and breaking your leg. Absolutely. Yes, Anthony. It's funny you reference Job. Go to chapter 10. The only other reference, that deep darkness occurs twice in the Bible, and chapter 10 is the other one. In fact, the reason why I think the King James translators translated the valley of the shadow of death is because of the Job usage. Because clearly when Job talks about it, he's talking about death, um, which is certainly one of the darker, scarier things. So Job 10. Um, so the three occurrences of valley of deep darkness is Jeremiah 2.6, Job 10, and Psalm 23. In Job 10, ha-ha, okay, ha-ha, verse 20 through 22. Oh, let's go to verse 18. You guys start the paragraph, right? Why did you bring me out of the womb? That I would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to my to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go, and I will not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, 
there's that same Hebrew expression. A land of gloom, like thick darkness, like a deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. And so, clearly, Job's talking about dying. And so, um, those are the two references. And so, I think they brought in the poetic nature of the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. It's really the valley of deep darkness is is a better translation. And what's interesting is, I bet you most of your translations have valley of the shadow of death. Anyone not have that? Okay. That's that's a great translation, fantastic translation. But you know. Take a guess why so many translations keep Valley of the Shadow of Death, even though we, we know a bit better now. No, precisely. What do you think people do when they check out a new translation? They go to their favorite passages. Abs- no. What do you do when you pick up a new translation? You go to your favorite passages. What does it do with Psalm 23? What does it do with the Lord's Prayer? What does it do with 1 Corinthians 13? And so there's, you'll find in those really well-known passages, most of the translations don't stray too far from the King Jimmy. They just don't. Because, anyway, sorry, that's a whole other issue. But um, no. So that's, uh, yeah, we, we can get ourselves into it ourselves, even through our own, just, it doesn't have to be sin. I mean, it, I, I made the point that David recognizes God's led him there. What I see a lot, and it's tragic, is people who, have tried to be faithful, something bad happens, and because they had a prosperity light theology, um, prosperity light theology, meaning if I'm a good boy or girl, if I do what I'm supposed to do, and if I read my Bible, and if I help out of the wana, and I don't do the big bad sins, then my life's going to be pretty easy, and it's going to be good, and, and we're going to be healthy, and we're going to keep our jobs, and, and our, our kids are all going to be Christians, and, and everything's going to be great. Well, not, not great, but everything's going to be smooth, and then something bad happens. The cancer comes, the, the unemployment comes, the kid goes astray, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, God, why'd you leave me? God, why'd you let this happen to me? And the very thing you're supposed to find comfort in which is, okay, this is terrible, this is ugly, this is awful. My shepherd led me here, my shepherd is with me. The very thing you're supposed to find, you don't believe is true, because either God made a mistake in letting it happen, or this is the devil. This is my lack of faith. And so you suffer doubly. You suffer because you're in the valley, and you suffer because you believe you're alone in the valley, which is terrible, terrible thing. It's, it's, it's stacking sorrow upon sorrows. The very reason David's not afraid in the valley is because God's with him. Now, if you think God's out there, that's going to be a very different experience than the valley. I mean, this theology is practical. There's really big practical effects in believing in the sovereignty of God, uh, in, in believing that God is in control of this world, that God is in control of this storm, that God is in control of, of the child we lost before um, Eliana. God has control of all those things. And he'll lead us to some dark places, but he's good and he knows what he's doing and he can be trusted and he hasn't left us alone in them. Like That's what I cling to when I'm in sorrow is not this is meaningless or the devil did it. My fa- It's the best example I can think of. We take our kids to the doctor to get a shot. There is no possible way on earth I can explain to Sophie or Zadok why that's a good idea. What they know is a strange man has got this scary-looking needle, and he's going to ram it into my arm, and it's going to hurt. And here's Dad saying, no, no, get, get, on, get on the table, sit still. At the end of the day, 
so fears addict, just trust. Does, does my dad love me? Does he know what he's doing? There's no possible way they can understand. And it's, now they can either believe, my dad knows what he's doing, this is frightening, or they can simultaneously believe, my father has abandoned me and hates me, and I'm getting a shot, which is that double whammy. Right? So that, that's, that's where theology matters. We talk about, the reason why I sort of talk about, because in the whirlwind is the wrong time to talk to someone about the sovereignty of God. When someone's life has collapsed, it's not the time to come in and do a, a Bible study on sovereignty. The time to plant those seeds is beforehand so that when the storm comes, there's some, some ballast, there's a foundation that, okay, my father has ordained this will happen, and, and, and not, it won't be any harder than he's measured out. It, it's purposeful. He's measured it out. He has, he has brought me to this, and he will bring me through it. That, that's got to be our hope. You know, but there's just so many Christians running around with that the devil did it. You know, God had nothing to do with that. God's a real nice guy. He's a gentleman. Well, I don't know what type of hope you have when bad things come, because if that's true, then God, hey, it's none of my business. I just you know, stand over here. Does that make sense? Does you see why that's important? Um, why these things practically show up? It's not just arguing theology. We talk about the sovereignty of God. Any questions on that? Because this is huge. Yes. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Let's let's talk about that. Aren't there places in the Old Testament that certainly seem to indicate, dude, you obey me, it's going to go well? No, absolutely. This is where you understand the notion of biblical covenants, okay? What's the fundamental and primary covenant of the Bible? It's the covenant God made with Abraham. Covenant of salvation. I'll be your God. I'll give you a seed, descendants. I'll give you a land. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians that that covenant is where the, the Savior comes through. And we become sons and daughters of Abraham by faith as we receive that covenant. And Paul makes it, in fact, go to, go to Galatians. I want to show you this. Because the covenant, there's another covenant in addition. There's more than one more covenant. There's a couple of covenants God makes. The Sinai covenant, or it is frequently called the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law absolutely, absolutely has prosperity promises, un- unquestionably. But the Mosaic Law is not the covenant by which we get saved. And we're not under the Mosaic Law because we're not Israel. We're not living in the land. We're not offering sacrifices. We don't have a high priest. Well, we do, but there's no vacancies for his spot. You know what I mean? Like that, the, We're not under the law. So, let's, so I want to show you the distinction between the two. Absolutely. And this is why people struggle with what to do with the Old Testament. And you've got to think through these things because there's different covenants. So in Galatians, Paul's trying to make this point specifically about why circumcision is not necessary. Because circumcision is clearly the entrance sign to the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant, you get circumcised and you're part of the Mosaic Covenant. In Galatians chapter, ooh, let's see, yeah, three. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. In other words, once you sign the, the, the title bill, the, the loan document for your car or your house, neither you nor the bank get to change the numbers, right? Unless you get a variable interest loan or whatever. But you get the, get the point. Once, once the contract's signed and witnessed, you don't alter it. Now, 
The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings regarding many, but regarding one, and to Abraham and to your offspring who is Christ. So he's saying is the promise of the Christ is part of the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Abraham to give him an offspring, to give him a seed. And Paul's saying that's Christ. Okay? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Whatever the law covenant is, it's not a covenant of salvation. That's Paul's point. The covenant of salvation is the covenant God made with Abram, later turned into Abraham. And we, we run into problems when we mistake the two. When we think we get saved, or when the Israelites thought they got saved by keeping Moses' law. They didn't. They never were intended to. I've shown you again and again where Moses himself knows this law project is going to fail because you guys are going to fail. The law was a great way to organize and restrain and focus a multi-million national people group. The law was great. It was good for that. It was a righteous law. It was a good law. But the law wasn't saving anybody. And Paul's whole point here is God's covenant of salvation came 430 years before the Mosaic law, and you don't get to alter or change covenants once they're made. So why the law then? Um, Okay, back to verse 17. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if Abraham, for if the inheritance comes by law, no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. You know, when you think about the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, and I'll use two sort of $5 words here. The Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. The Mosaic covenant is bilateral. Did that distinction make any sense? You know what I mean? Uh, who promised in the covenant God made with Abraham? What did, Mos- what did Abraham promise? Zero. He was asleep. The Abrahamic covenant is God making promises to Abraham without condition. It's all grace. It's all free. There's nothing Abraham has to do. He's asleep on the ground. God, God alone, imaged by the burning torch, goes through the dead animals. Because the whole point, you, you cut, that's the technical term, you cut a covenant. And so they cut, God had Abraham cut up the, the birds, and the torch goes through him. And the symbolism is, if I break my word, may, this, may I be torn asunder. And Abram doesn't go through, only God does. It is a unilateral covenant. But at Sinai... Both parties make promises. Both parties have obligations. There's the blessing and there's the curse. And so at Sinai, you have a bilateral covenant where God says, hey, look, I'll be your God, I'll be your sovereign, you be my people, and if you're faithful, then absolutely, you're going to have the crops, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to have military victories, and you're going to have peace in your land, and there won't be famine, and there won't be infertility, and there won't be disease. But... If you disobey, I will give your enemies victory over you. I will close your wombs. I will have the, the, the insects and the swarms ravage your, your fields. And ultimately, I'll take you into another land, which is exactly what he did. So there's blessings and there's curse, which is how Deuteronomy ends in Deuteronomy 30 with the blessing and the curse. Um, in fact, go to Deuteronomy 30. So, so the, the answer to your question, for the people who want to find prosperity promises, yes, undeniably, the Mosaic Covenant is, is economic, physical prosperity promising. What on earth, my question, just, I'm just thinking more like Joel Olstein or something, what on earth makes you think we're under the Mosaic Law? Have you not read Paul or Romans or Galatians? You know, 
It's like, bro, do you even Romans 7? It's like what I want to be like. Um, sorry. Okay, all right. Um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Um, and we'll go to Romans 7 in a second. This is, this is big, and I hope it helps you in reading your Bibles, because I know that we can get confusing with all these chapters of law. What's going on? We're going to Deuteronomy um, 30. Deuteronomy 30. Um, pick it up in verse 1. Moses this is Moses' closing address. He's not going to cross over into the land to dwell with in the promised land. He's going to die before he gets to go over. And this is, Book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons, a series of addresses he gives, his closing address. And he's, the reason I call it Deuteronomos is he's repeating the law covenant. He's reiterating the law covenant. It's a summary and a restatement of the covenant they made with God 40 years earlier at Sinai. When these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, you return. So Moses is well aware. Hey guys, you're not going to keep this covenant. It's going to fail because you're going to fail and you're going to be taken off the land and deported, which is what he threatens them. So, so Moses is well aware the Mosaic law is not meant to be a permanent. It's, it's not sufficient to get the job done. It's great. Paul's going to talk about his insufficiencies. We'll look at that in Romans seven in a minute. Moses is perfectly well aware of that too. But for a time, the law will govern and reign in and order a multi-million person people group. So when all this happens, and you return to the Lord your God with your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will gather you from all the... This is what we're reading about in Zechariah, right? When God, they look on the one they've pierced and God's going to gather them. This, this is the promise of that. The Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He'll gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast from the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your offspring so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, you may live. God's ultimately, this is a reference to the new covenant, God is ultimately going to do what you can't do. If, if, this, is a, this is a link back to earlier in the book, Deuteronomy chapter 10, where God commands them to circumcise their hearts. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 10. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord that I command you today. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are to this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. To which they should have said, we can't do that. And God lets that command hang there for 20 chapters. And he tells us when all this is done, and when this all fails, and when you're scattered, then, this sounds an awful lot like the new covenant, God gives you a new heart and you're born again, then the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your life. Now go to Romans. Romans, we'll start in two, we'll get to seven. Because the New Testament's going to pick up that type of language. 
Paul, in particular, is going to pick up that type of language. Verse 25, chapter 2. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if see, the Jews, basically, we got the sign of the covenant. We're in the covenant. We're good to go. We got Abraham as our father, and Paul says, well, that only works if you keep the covenant. Break the law, and it's not going to help you. In fact, verse 26, if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If, if, a, if a Gentile without circumcision obeys the law perfectly, do you think God's going to be like, well, but... No. But of course, there's no such person, so we're speaking hypothetically. Verse 27, then he was physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one is... No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Ooh. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. So, so that's part of the point. The Jews were so focused on these externals, especially the Pharisees with their phylacteries, their big boxes with Scripture in them and their curled sideburns and all their stuff, that they missed that this is all about something more foundational, a circumcised heart. Which is why David, in Psalm 51, can say, I'm not, I, I would offer you burnt sacrifices, but that's not what you want. What are the sacrifices of God? We sing it like every other month. Broken spirit and a contrite heart. These you will not despise. Those are the sacrifices of God. Now, as if we think suddenly David's just ripped out in the book of Leviticus from his Bible... He goes on two verses later to say, Restore me, acquit me of blood guiltiness, O God. Then I will offer burnt sacrifices. So David is not saying what we can be tempted to say, because there's two dangers, right? Because what matters is my heart, it doesn't matter what I do. That, people can see that. It, it doesn't matter if I actually get baptized. What matters is my heart is right. No, David recognizes there's, there's commandments he's supposed to obey. He's supposed to offer sacrifices. He doesn't say, because what matters is a broken spirit and a contrite heart, I don't have to do offer bulls and goats. What he recognizes is which is the foundational. There's a covenant that sits below the Mosaic law, and, and the Mosaic law is only to be beneficial for people who have, by faith, entered into the promise of Abraham. And now, with a broken spirit and a contrite heart, David's going to go offer sacrifices. But there's two covenants. Back to, back to Romans, chapter 7. And we'll be done with this. This is a big enough point that it's well worth spending time on. Well worth spending time on. Because um, we are not under the law. We aren't. Yes, Lee. He called us, he gave us life, he drew us, he brought us forth by his own will as a kind of first fruits by the power of his word. Right? Again and again in the New Testament. Born not of the will of man or of bloods, but of God. It's a unilateral covenant. He set his love on us. Why? Because he set his love on us. Romans 7. Okay, he uses the example. Uh, okay, let's just start in verse 1. Do not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, 
The law is binding on a person. Now, when he says the law, he's talking about the law of Moses, the Sinai covenant. The law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a woman married is bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, he's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress. If she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's freed from the law. And if, the mar- and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. I don't know how much more clearly you can say, you've died to the law, if you ever were of it, under it. I don't think there are many people who are Jewish here. But if you, if you are Jewish and you're a Christian, you've died to the law. What does he mean? The law? Yes, he means the law. And then he starts asking a series of rhetorical questions. Verse 7 is the first one. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And what what Paul's anticipating is that someone's going to conclude that because Paul is just taught we're freed from the law, well, that must be because the law was evil. No, 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 no. The law wasn't evil. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what I have not known, what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, I want to pause. What's he quoting right there? You shall not covet. So this can't just refer to the ceremonial law, and this can't just refer to the political law. He just quoted the ten, one of the Ten Commandments as his example of what we've died to. And that's huge. Because some people want to say, well, all this means is we've died from having to give sacrifices. He doesn't quote the sacrificial system. He quotes the Big Ten. We died to the law. Now, unless you think that means we're free agents now, we can go sin that grace may abound. We have been united to another. So, no, no, we're under the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses. And the law of Christ and the law of Moses, at many points, sound an awful lot alike. <laughs> but that's his example of what we've died to. His example is quoting one of the Ten Commandments. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but the commandment came, and sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life promised to prove, proved to be death to me. The reason we need to be freed from the law is the law was killing us, not because the law is evil, because we are. And the law was just revealing our and awakening our sinfulness. Then he asks the next rhetorical question. Well, then, if the law isn't evil, did that which is good then bring death? The law kill me? No, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold under sin, for I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. Then we get to that section where Paul talks about how he doesn't pull both ways, which I think everyone gets all types of confused. Uh, people debate, is this this guy at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, is he a Christian? Is he not a Christian? Is he saved? Is he not a saved? That's the wrong question. The question, look, you know what I'm talking about? You guys tracking this? This is, this is one of those big hotly debated passages. Last week, I figured every week we'll look at a hotly debated passage. Last week we looked at Hebrews 6. This week we'll look at Romans 7. But, but as we read through this, this section of, of Romans 7, um, verse 21 and following. So I find that the law... There to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the will 
um, the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with the flesh I serve the law of sin. And people want to ask, is this guy a believer or not a believer? Is Paul describing a born-again Christian's experience or is he describing an unbeliever's experience? And again, you know, like pages on this. Paul is trying to show us something about the law. Um, so my first thought would be, I, I think it would be weird if he's just explained how Christians aren't under the law, but he wants to illustrate something about the law's weakness to point to a born-again believer. I, what, what are you going to learn about the law? Because remember, this is all an answer to the question in verse 13. Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? By no means. So whatever he's illustrating is supposed to back that answer up, by no means. I think really simply put, Paul is showing us what sanctification by law looks like. Try Try to get sanctified by law. Try to get sanctified by rules. Try to get sanctified just just by law without, because the big counterpoint to that is to be the Holy Spirit, chapter 8. And you're going to look at a, a, a living frustration. Your mind is going to go one way and your desires go the other. Because the solution to this is, is verse, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if your goal is, I'm going to pick up the Mosaic law, I'm going to get sanctified. Good luck. It'll beat you over the head. It'll set an impossible standard you'll never be able to meet. And you will not have any power to fight sin. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive, is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your model. Anyway, he goes on. The whole point is how the spirit, the spirit is the solution. The spirit is the power. The spirit is the principle by which we put to death the deeds of the flesh. The spirit, not the law. That, that's the whole point. That's, that's how he illustrates the weakness of the law. The law wasn't bad. The law didn't kill me. You were sinful. Your sin kills you, but you needed something better than the law, is Paul's whole point. Um, so this is a long answer for your question. But if we don't understand that, that we're in a, so when you're reading the Old Testament, what section? We're in, are we in Proverbs? You know, we've got to ask questions. We're in the law. And so who is this who is this fundamentally for the law as a set of instructions is for Israel now the law serves other functions as well so it does not legislate us right the best example i can use would be this um there's a set of law codes for missouri and a set of law codes for iowa and i'm certain that many 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 of them look identical right are we under the jurisdiction of the missouri law codes no police officer came in here and tried to arrest one of us citing those laws, he'd be out of his jurisdiction. There's plenty of similarity. 
there's plenty of similarity of the law of Christ in the new covenant. Jesus repeating things, Jesus reiterating things. So we're not free to go be lawless, but we're not properly under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic covenant. We're not Israel. We don't have sacrifices. We don't get to pick and choose. The New Testament's emphatic. You break one part of the law, you break all the law. We're not trying to keep the law. Not the law of Moses. And so, yeah, unashamedly, the law of Moses is a prosperity promise. It's also got all types of threats, too. I wouldn't want to claim those. (laughs) Um, God's going to take you off into captivity, and I'm not a big fan of that. You don't hear people promising that. Um, Usually the prosperity gospel is just the one-sided, the blessing. You know, if they want to be consistent. But if you're faithless, you'll probably get kidnapped and taken to, like, Iran or something, you know, would be the other side of it if you want to be consistent. Um, But no, that's the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is, I mean, at the end of Zechariah, we saw the Messianic kingdom, right? Their physical prosperity, physical peace, physical being lifted up among the nations. Absolutely. Um, Okay, I've been doing a lot of talking. Any questions on all of that? I've just been rambling, sorry. Another day, we don't get to the Holy Spirit. Sorry, Natalie. Well, we've got four minutes. Maybe we can start. Any any questions? Yes, Candy. Oh, it's longer than a four-minute. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, I'd say if, if, if you... Certainly the shadow of darkness can be from the sin of another. Joseph was sold into slavery, but God led him there. They're not mutually exclusive options. So if you led yourself there, then it's really crying out, God, I walked off in the dark, help. Um, but God led, in, Joseph, in Genesis 50-20, um, go, go to Genesis 50-20, we get this amazing, we talked about God's, we're coming full circle, we've got four minutes, Genesis 50, verse 20, we'll just we'll look at that. Amazing statement on the sovereignty of God. So what's involved in Joseph and, and his little life story? His, they faked his death, they kidnapped him. They sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused of rape and imprisoned. That qualify for a valley of deep darkness, do you think? Kidnapped, fake death, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, rotting in jail in a faraway land. And finally, you know, God, after years, vindicates him, exalts him, raises him up. And his brothers, because dad's just died. So when, when his brothers first come to him, Jake, Joseph forgives them, but they're afraid, well, what if that was just because dad was alive and now dad's dead, he's going to whoop up on us. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this commandment before he died. <laughs> These guys are wimps. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? Verse 20 is absolutely amazing. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant Joseph to be sold into slavery. God meant Joseph to be falsely accused. God meant Joseph to be kidnapped for good. 
even while the people who meant it for evil will be punished. That's because God is sovereign. God is in control. So God meant it. God led him there. God, that's where the shepherd took him. And it doesn't excuse wicked people for doing wicked things. You read the Psalms. The psalmists are crying out that God would, you know, vindicate them. But, but all of Joseph's dark valley is be specifically because of other people's sin. And yet Joseph recognizes God meant it. This wasn't an accident. This is where the shepherd led me. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God meant this. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't by mistake. This wasn't God being a gentleman saying, I won't interfere with the free will of your brothers. They have their choices to make, and I can't do anything about it. You meant it for evil. God meant it. I'll tell you a little bit with the Hebrew grammar. It's even tighter. The, the word for evil here, ra'ah, um, is a feminine um, Hebrew particle. And the word for you meant it for, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The it in Hebrew is a feminine pronoun. It can only possibly agree with evil. A literal translation could very much be, you meant evil against me and God meant the evil for good. There can't be any wiggle room over that. And I know some, and, and everybody who has a hard time in the sovereignty of God, you meant evil against me, but God turned it for good. It's not what it says. In grammar, when you've got two phrases that say the same thing in parallel, you really have to make your case for why they don't mean the same thing. So you meant evil, you meant God meant. You can't have you meant, but really God meant mean God turned. No, whatever it meant for Joseph's brothers to mean something here, God meant. God's sovereign. And he'll work even through sinful people to accomplish his purposes, just like God sovereignly caused the crucifixion of his son, even while the apostles condemned the, the Jews for crucifying Jesus. It doesn't remove our responsibility. Um, so so they, they're both there. If, if people have wronged you and people have done you wrong, you don't say, well, because the Lord brought me here. What? No, if, if somebody's wronged you and you're crying out in anguish, the Psalms will encourage you to do that. But also know at the same time, the shepherd has brought you here. It, it's, it's both and, it's not either or. So um, it's time. We've got a picnic. We can talk some more at the picnic. Um, God bless. One of these days, one of these days, Natalie, we're to get back to our sheet.